Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this chapter 21. I'm your host, Bonnie Lee, and this is Writing About Crime. In mid-January of 1999, author and journalist Steve Simmons found himself perplexed. Why, he asked Terry Koshin, the junior hockey reporter with the Toronto Sun, would a last-place team trade their best players away? Koshin didn't hesitate answering, because they want to get away from Frost. Who's Frost, he asked. You don't want to know, he answered. Growing up in Brampton, Ontario, young Mike Jefferson's dream from a young age was to play NHL hockey. This was pleasing to his father, Steve, who was an okay hockey player himself as a youth and continued to be a big fan of the sport. He was proud to see Mike on the ice playing his little heart out. He was clearly talented and inspired. Little Mike had NHL logos on everything in his room. If there was an NHL version of something, bedding, socks, even wallpaper, Mike had it. He dreamed, talked, and breathed hockey. But so do lots of Canadian kids. It was Mike's energy and focus that stood him apart. He started out in the house league like almost every young player does, but then straight into the Chingwakusi Blues, where he met Sheldon Keefe, a new best friend and a young kid that had more skills than energy. He was someone that Mike could work towards keeping up with. Luckily, Sheldon's father got on well with Mike's dad, Stephen, so the two families were close and they hung out together a lot. And so it begins. Mike is the nitro on the ice. He's a grinder, and he facilitates Sheldon's finesse playing by making way for him on the ice. Even though Sheldon is the skills guy, he needs Mike to shine. All part of the team that's needed to see success. Mike had his own inspiration by that point. He was riveted by the great Steve Yazerman. According to the book The Lost Dream by Steve Simmons, one of the definitive sources on Mike's story to date, until, of course, Mike tells it on his own, is the young Mike Danton's real idol in hockey was the great Captain Yazerman. Off with the Leafs jersey and into Yazerman's Detroit red and white, even his wallpaper had to be changed from generic NHL paper to painted red and white, and he recruited his brother Tim into the fold. The two boys talked to Yazerman all day and night, and Mike continued on playing minor hockey with his friend Sheldon, and they were on a successful team for a time. And their parents were already turning gears in their minds to what the next moves would be or the next step in the game for their boys. As Mike got a little older, it was time for him to move on to an advanced league, then known as the MTHL. And because it was in one of the most populated parts of the country, it was the biggest league. The Metro Toronto League is now the Greater Toronto League, but it's essentially the same. 
because Mike Jefferson was considered a great prospect. He found himself playing for the Toronto Red Wings as his next move. Mike and his father, Steve, were happy with the result after tryouts. A new team that's building a good base is kind of a coveted thing in AAA hockey. Sometimes the team is the main point of playing when the players and their parents are looking for the best way to shine at this level of hockey. It's kind of an esteem thing. Steve Simmons explains the scenario in the Greater Toronto League at that time in his book, so if you're interested in that aspect of Mike's career, you should check it out. It's really interesting, and it gives a good account of the history of Mike's early game. For purposes of this chapter, though, you may find some insight that I have a bit compelling for consideration especially once you see where the direction heads for the players in this story. I'm not a hockey expert, but I do work in a rink, and I see some aspects of the environment around players at this level. Reading up on Mike's case, I identified some things that I would call an established pattern. I was nodding along to the notions of players that are picked before tryouts even really start. The ambition of some parents that exceeds their kids' desire to just play hockey. And the surprising influence that parents perceive or even entitle themselves to have over the coaching staff and the other players. It's really shocking at such an early stage in anyone's hockey career. And the intensity is kind of silly if you're on the outside. You don't see this so much with high school hockey and the younger kids. But once AAA and the junior hockey leagues are involved, things can get very weird. Most of the time, it's a lot of young people and parents with their family members out to cheer on their favorite team, and likely a family member that's on the ice to cheer for. The players blast a lot of loud music from the change rooms, and they get psyched while coaches and refs get things organized to do some last-minute pep talks. And it's all exciting and fun, but sometimes a bit of a chore. Driving kids and all that equipment around and making it to practices and games, getting skates sharpened, buying more sticks, all of it. These parents are doing a lot, and it's involved and expensive stuff. Usually, their kids don't really understand how much mom and pops are sacrificing, but that's kind of how it goes for any parent supporting their kids involved in extracurricular activities. Yet... Compared to other regular after-school extracurriculars, hockey remains one of the most expensive, coming in at about $900 minimum in fees. This makes it almost double the next most expensive group in the music and dance classes. That is before they get into AAA, where it increases a lot as the quality of equipment and costs of travel go a bit deeper into the budget. Replacing one stick alone can run you easily $300. So hockey parents shell it out, and they usually have to do it all in minus degree temperatures. Just as in any competitive sport or events, there are more enthusiastic parents than some, and they just can't maintain their control. So you see these people out, and they're yelling a bit too loud at the refs, the coaches, the other players, and even at their own kids. And it's high emotion in sports, but that's part of the fun, until, and it's not necessarily only limited to games, but practices even. 
even car rides to practice, you'll get some parents that are just simply overzealous. The select few that believe that their exemplary, talented child is the next Sidney Crosby, and it's their job to push everyone out of the way in their path to the NHL. Usually, their little player is simply not that good because it is in fact rare to be Sidney Crosby. So, they complain and they moan about how much ice time that their player is getting, and they disagree with the coach and the coaching staff, especially when they don't agree with their decision-making. They aren't shy to ream out anyone not seeing things their way, and they even take the time to coach their own child to play the game the way they want them to, and will specifically tell their kids, don't listen to the coach. It's pretty intense sometimes. These things don't always happen, but it's not unusual either. And during games, you see it at its finest. The screaming and name-calling of these young guys on the ice is sometimes brutal. And it's not unlikely to see parents chirping or even fighting one another during games. It's become such an issue that Manitoba Hockey has parents do a Respect in Sport online course before they can even register their kids to get on the ice. This is far from the level of NHL hockey, but I have literally seen a grown man yell at a 16-year-old female ref for making a call that he didn't agree with, calling her the fucking C-word from the stands. And it scared people around him, but it was common enough that most just ignored it, and the game continued on. One player said to me upon reflecting that parents ruin hockey. They shouldn't even be allowed to go to the games. I'm trying to stress here not how weird Canadian parents are, but the intensity of everyone around these players. They realistically will end their hockey career when they're in their mid-twenties and play quite happily in a local league, enjoying some or many beverages and socializing. And so, from that, you can kind of see how the crazy that's involved in hockey is at a higher level as they achieve. And if you happen to have a kid like Mike, who is not only 100% into hockey, but he's a natural athlete. Not only is it all too easy to take things really seriously, but chances are, so are a lot of people around you. So, young Mike is stoked to play on a team with like-minded players that are at his level and reaching for his dream to play professional hockey in the NHL. Mike Jefferson loves hockey. But things are beginning to serendipitously fall in place for him. Soon, Mike will be less concerned about pleasing himself with some good ice time. It's inevitable that his plays will become about pleasing other people off the ice. And he will be relying on others with some perspective to mentor him as a young man into a successful life and career. Up until this point, that role was dutifully filled by his parents specifically his father, Steve. He would psych Mike up on the way to games, and Mike loved it. Once the hockey season is over, there are still summer leagues and summer camps, so you don't have to give up hockey just because it's above zero outside. And the Toronto Red Wings team had a strong competitor in the Brampton All-Stars. 
those young men were driven and mentored by a coach who also ran a local hockey school. He was an up-and-comer himself, and he had his sights set out to make professional hockey players out of the excess of young talent that he identified out in the GTHL. And that coach came crashing into Mike's life with reckless abandon. And he will hit Mike, his parents, his brother, and the game of hockey like a freight train, leaving a frosty trail behind him. So please, don't leave me. Mike's dad meets David Frost, and the first thing he hears from him is that he's recruiting for a young Nats team. Steve had heard about David Frost. He had a reputation as a guy that would push players to the max. He was no-nonsense and ambitious, and he wanted to assure Steve that if Mike played for him, he would make him the team captain. David was really trying to get Mike to play for him, and he was going to every game that Mike played for the Toronto Red Wings and focusing in on talking to Steve every time that he had a chance to. And the timing was right, too. Although the local wings were playing well, Mike's father wasn't thrilled with the experience. His son wasn't getting much ice time, and it was pissing Steve off. Even when the team won the Ontario Provincial Championship, Steve was outside, fuming that his son only played four shifts in the entire game. The time was right for David Frost to make his pitch once again. He questioned Steve, and if he wanted Mike playing for the team anymore, saying, if you come with me, I'll play your kid to the death. David Frost had already given the coveted C to Mike's teammate, Sheldon, who was also going to play for David. So Steve felt like he had waited too long, and enough when David said he would make Mike the alternate captain, Steve was all in. The two boys would continue to play together, and it seemed like this was the right move. Twelve years old, and Mike was offered up to David Frost for his guidance and coaching. Things were looking up. Steve did see that Frost was tough on the boys. He did have a hot temper, and his delivery and coaching style was no-nonsense all right. This group of kids aren't even into mid-teens yet, and he's swearing and yelling and working them like they're in a prison. Most parents just think he's intense, and they move back from it. The players don't seem to be sounding any alarms, and their performance was definitely improving. Steve liked David, and they were becoming friends. They would chat on the phone or meet up to watch hockey games together. Sue and Steve noticed that David didn't seem to gel well with the other parents. He didn't communicate with them as much, and he gave the impression that he didn't like them. He would confide in Steve about his feelings on the players, their folks, and even on how the games were played. It made Steve feel more included and on a higher level than most of the other parents. Things were not perfect in Mike's home growing up. His father had a bad drinking problem, as his father before him, and he often was loud and obnoxious at hockey games. And he was not a great husband to Sue either. He had some trouble with the law in the past for driving drunk, selling and possessing drugs, as well as assault. He'd even done time in prison for a short stint after a failed drug deal. And as the focus on hockey increased with Mike and Steve's involvement with David Frost, 
Sue was becoming more and more isolated. By now, she'd given birth to Mike's little brother, Tom, and she wasn't interested in the long drives to and from hockey games and practices. It was hockey on the television, hockey talk at the table, hockey being talked about on the phone until late hours. She just wasn't interested, and her focus was on family. And so she was taking care of the home and letting the boys enjoy the hockey stuff with their father. Yet, as Mike became more involved with David Frost, she noticed that he was becoming more distant with her and definitely had no time for young Tom anymore. He was even becoming noticeably mouthy and ignorant with her. And to some degree, she expected a teenage boy to get somewhat belligerent. But he was getting particularly nasty, and his language was unacceptable. Yet, she was getting the feeling that there was a wall around Mike, and Steve too, and that this hockey stuff was impenetrable, and she had trouble communicating it into words. She had bad feelings about David Frost too. It seemed the dark cloud kind of drove in with him, and she couldn't see Mike or Steve even recognizing it. Like some kind of witchcraft. He had them under a spell, and she wasn't very comfortable with it. Mike was so clearly very passionate about hockey, and she didn't want to prevent his pursuits, but she did feel something wasn't right. And then, David moves his family into a new home that's within a short walking distance of the Jefferson's home. And now, whenever Mike is having a fit, or getting pissy, or even just not getting his way, He's traipsing over to David's home. And this distance is causing Sue to feel like she's lost some control over her family home and structure. And Mike is acting out and getting into more trouble by now. In the rink, he's the most hardworking and behaved disciplined player. But off the ice, he's becoming a hellion. At one point, He's caught shoplifting and is arrested. And rather than calling home, he calls David. Once Stephen confronts his son after the charges, he tells him he should move out if he's going to get himself into trouble. But that was a mistake. Once that gauntlet was thrown, Mike takes it as his way out whenever he's in trouble. That becomes his play, to just up and leave and stay with David, even overnight, anytime he wants. And it almost seemed like he would use any excuse to get mad and leave his family home to stay with David. Tom, his brother, was also feeling the tension during those years. Mike was treating him more as an annoyance more than anything, and it was hard for him because he was much younger and he wanted to hang around with Mike, but he'd be greeted with swearing and name-calling. And it hurt his feelings, but there wasn't really much he could do. And his parents weren't stepping in and encouraging the two brothers to spend time together. Everything was about hockey around Mike. And then, in the summer of 2000, Tom gets invited to join Mike and some of his teammates to go to David's cabin, north of Kingston, Ontario. At that time, Tom was only 13 years old, and Mike was in his early 20s, so Sue wasn't feeling very enthused about it. However, she wanted Tom to have fun, and she decided that she would tell Mike to make sure that there was no shenanigans involving Tom. She also had a young man named Larry Barron living with her. Larry, a fellow hockey player that had moved on into his own esteemed career, but at the time was a young and responsible kind of adult that Sue trusted. 
he told her not to be concerned and that it may even be good for Mike and Tom to have some bonding time outside at the lake. Sue even became convinced that Mike may be able to influence Tom to be a better driven hockey player. Tom had the shine, but he didn't have the motivation that David always had. Maybe this time together would give Tom that push that he needed to make a stronger commitment to his hockey playing. It didn't really turn out that way, though. When Tom returned from the lake, he seemed even more withdrawn and less motivated to play hockey than ever. Mike was seemingly getting more aggro as well, and Steve became aware that he was dabbling in steroids. He wasn't pleased about it, but people reassured him that Mike would grow out of it and consider it more of a phase. By 2000, the big day arrived, draft day. The anticipation of putting on a new NHL sweater is a big deal for any prospective player. And Mike had previously been skipped on draft day, so this year it was a bit more stress than it is for most first-timers. Like anything that you want really badly, you always go into it with some reservation so your heart isn't broken. In most cases, it's just as stressful on the family of the player, or even maybe possibly worse. So much time money and hard work has gone into these players <laughs> that it can feel very, very daunting. For the player, it becomes, does anybody want me? And strangely, that day, Mike Jefferson's father did not sit in front of the TV in anticipation of the big show. In fact, he left town and went out to cottage country with his brother where there was no television and he and Jeff went fishing and drinking beer. He feared disappointment. It was unfounded, though. Mike had a strong year playing with the Colts, winning the Ontario Hockey League Championship, and really working on his game. And he was motivated, especially considering that his close friend Sheldon Keefe had been drafted already. Well, wasted energy worrying. Mike was drafted by the New Jersey Devils that year. And although he was a fifth round pick, he still had a shot at playing some good ice time in the big leagues if he could show off his drive and commitment. Still, the reality is he was a long shot. He wasn't big like most of the players in the league and he had to work harder and put more into the game to get the attention that seemed to come more naturally to others. But his grind was his strong suit. He kept moving, he kept pushing, and he stayed focused. And there's so much value in that in a fast-paced game that it can't be understated. Mike's father was overwhelmed on the way back into the city. He got a call from Brian Keefe, Sheldon's father, congratulating him on the big day. And he was crying and yelling, Mike's going to the fucking New Jersey Devils. Brian knew how much Steve had put into Mike's hockey career. They had gone up the ranks of hockey parents together and both had sons that ran the same gamut. But he also knew that with Steve's drinking and the debt that they incurred along the way to keep up, the Jefferson family really had been through a lot and given up a lot to make Mike's way even possible through all the years. Sue Jefferson was at home alone when the call came from Steve. It was bittersweet. She never was included in all of the hockey stuff. She was always in the background, taking care of the home and the tasks of life while the hockey stuff happened around her. She wasn't involved in the talk or even really engaged in attending the games. So 
There was no real event planned around the draft. Mike wasn't really close with the family anymore, so it was odd getting the news of his success and this milestone and feeling so proud and happy for him and then kind of just left there to go back to the dishes or whatever she was doing. Steve, although he didn't seem to get it, was almost as isolated from experiencing Mike's success. Mike was with David Frost during the draft and he didn't call home after hearing his name called and nobody from back home called Mike. According to Steve Simmons in his book, The Lost Dream, Mike came home a few days later for a quick visit. He stayed less than half an hour and left to go back to David Frost's house. His agent, Mike Gillis, and David Frost were kind of taking care of things in his life. All he had to do was go out and perform on the ice. Nobody was encouraging him to keep ties with his family, and he, for some reason, didn't seem eager to do it on his own. Then, causing even more problems, of course, is money. Dave told Mike that his father had heard about his $1 million contract and his $75,000 signing bonus. And he was looking for a piece of the pie. When David Frost told him that his father was looking for $50,000 to supposedly pay for his income tax arrears, Mike refused to talk to his father. From then on, any time that Steve tried to call his son, he got Frost on the line, claiming that Mike was focusing on hockey and didn't want to talk to him. His mother would mail him typed out letters and they would be returned with his address crossed out and a return to sender stamped across the front. Mike's early days after being drafted were a time to really prove what he had and he wasn't thrilled when he had to start out in the minor league team, which is something not unusual for anyone just drafted, especially a fifth round pick. Yet, Mike was not impressed on being on the Albany River Rats. He was kind of a mild annoyance with all the questions he had about ice time and what line he was playing. He didn't just keep his nose to the grindstone like most players. Usually, if the guys in the minor leagues have concerns, their agent will communicate it with the coaching staff. It wasn't particularly notable, but it did give the impression to some of the office members that Mike may not necessarily be deciding on approaching them on his own. He might be being encouraged to confront them. And yet, seemingly, his agent, Mike Gillis, didn't really use the go-deal-with-this-on-your-own approach. There were also other strange behaviors early on in Mike's professional career. He was noticed to be frequently on the telephone, before games and practices and immediately afterwards. Mike basically kept to himself as far as his teammates go. And when he was off the ice, the guys felt awkward about him always whispering into the phone. Over time, people started assuming that he was talking to David Frost. And it's unlikely any agent would have the time or the patience to be yakking on the phone that much. Mike didn't gel in well with the Devils' culture that way, and the New Jersey team was very focused on the importance of that culture and being in the Devils' family. Mike's individual style was an issue. He would play well, but often he would do strange, unpredictable things, like picking a fight during a winning game where it seemed unnecessary, almost as if someone was telling him to fight. Still, Mike Jefferson was a hardworking player, and he had talent, 
So in attempts to bring him in line, they decided after summer training camp that Mike would be held back with the River Rats for a while to keep working on his game. And when the team told Mike's agent, Gillis was not shocked. It seemed like a reasonable proposition for a fourth line player with one year under his belt. Yet when Mike found out about the demotion, he was pissed. And when they offered to sort it out with his agent, Gillis, Mike informed them that Gillis was not his agent anymore. This was news to the team and news to Mike Gillis, but after that, Mike was suspended for not reporting to Albany. He basically just left for California, and Mike Gillis was grateful for the favor. The Devils coaching staff were more uneasy about it all. For Mike to just quit was in direct contrast to his fearless playing and his work ethic. On the ice, he was in it 100%. There was no quit in his play or his training. But in his life, something was starting to pull him apart. The Devils didn't want to give up on Mike. They had trouble believing that Mike would want to give up on his NHL hockey career. By the summer of 2002, something remarkable happened. Mike changed his name from Michael Stephen Jefferson to Michael Sage Danton, and his parents were never informed. They read about it in the newspaper, and there was no specific reason for choosing that name. Mike randomly picked it from the name of another player that he knew in his early days of hockey, and he liked it. It had no particular meaning to him other than it distanced himself from his family. That summer, David Frost was certified as a player agent by the National Hockey League Players Association. So, when Mike Gillis, who had represented Mike and some other players that David had worked with, decides to let go of Mike, David Frost naturally became Mike Danton's new agent. The New Jersey Devils traded Mike Danton to the St. Louis Blues in the summer of 2003. And in a strange move, Mike took the puck that he saved when he made his first NHL goal with the New Jersey Devils and he wrapped it up, mailing it back to the team office with a note saying, I don't need this anymore. As Mike Danton continued his career with the St. Louis team, he was doing a bit better in terms of connecting with the guys. He still had that weird habit of being almost tethered to the telephone, but he was starting to step out a bit more. He wasn't necessarily the outsider that he'd been for a large part of his gameplay. He was a role player on the team, and you can't really hide away in that position. He was making friends. He was engaging with other players more. The coaching staff was aware that Mike had a propensity to go at things as an individual, so they had eyes on him in that respect. They were pleasantly surprised at his progress in team building, and behind the scenes, he was doing things that many other players did in those days. But he was also using uppers, painkillers, drinking, using downers and sleeping pills to get rest. To what extent isn't really known. And he was frequenting a strip club in the east end of St. Louis regularly. And he even started dating. He meets Katie Wolfmeyer at the Ice Zone, the regular practice rink for the St. Louis team. And she's an instructor for younger skaters. And she's around the rink a lot. She's athletic, she's young and enthusiastic about life, but she becomes taken with the young 
hockey professional, and they become in a relationship of sorts. Some have classified it as a fan-type fascination, but she seems legitimately enamored of Mike. Near the spring, around May of 2004, Mike meets Ronnie Jones, a bouncer at the strip club he frequents. They don't become friends, but they know of each other. And Mike believes Ronnie is also connected, even believing he is a professional hitman. Ronnie clarifies that he's not in the business of killing, and he jests about even if he was, he's not anymore. In April, the St. Louis team makes the first round of the playoff series that would run five games in eight nights. It's the St. Louis Blues versus the San Jose Sharks. And Danton's role is to get under the opposing team's skin and chirp them out, even occasionally picking a fight if he wants to keep the heat on the Sharks. Ron Wilson, the Sharks coach, said, when he was on the ice, you knew it. Mike was unpredictable, and even in the dressing room, his antics were the topic of discussion. Larry Plew, the general manager of the St. Louis Blues, said that during the playoffs, the way he was playing, you would never know something was going on with him. But there was. The Easter Sunday before the Blues hosted the first game in the Stanley Cup series, Mike called Ronnie Jones and offered him money to murder his agent, David Frost. Ronnie had already declined the $10,000 previously. He was not interested and didn't want to discuss it with Mike anymore. He had already been shown a photo of Mike's target, David Frost. He was told the reason behind the hit was an argument over money that they couldn't come to an agreement on. But he didn't answer his phone and he let the call go to voicemail. Ronnie Jones ended up turning in the voicemail to the police later on. The Blues lost the first two games in the series and won the third at home. Game four, Mike scores his first and only playoff goal in his life. Katie Wolfmeyer is in the crowd wearing a We Want Danton shirt. And when he returned to San Jose, he called Ronnie again, wondering why his target wasn't dead yet, saying this is a matter of life and death for him now. Before game five, he confides in Katie that someone is coming from Canada to kill him when he's in St. Louis, and he needed someone to help him find a person willing to take care of them. Did she know a guy? That same night, she meets a guy at a local bar within an hour. She's negotiating a hit on someone for Mike. Levi Jones, who's a police dispatcher. Katie knew it, and Mike knew it. In fact, he even says to them, You're not going to tell on me, are you? Levi asks Mike several times and in several different ways to clarify what exactly it is that Mike wants him to do. And the conversation is pretty convoluted. But Levi is trying to get Mike to be concise. He's finding him a bit scattered, but they're discussing money and how much and in what way the money would be delivered. Mike is saying strange things, like he's desperate and he's in fear for his life. And he sounds like he's literally begging. Levi ends up going to his Columbia police office first thing in the morning and he gets wired up. By that night, he's carrying an unloaded firearm, a wire, and he goes on to stage himself to look as though he's going to assassinate David Frost and he is going to get Katie Wolfmeyer and Mike Danton. So he heads over to pick up Katie. 
A security guard at the property asks her ID, and he buzzes the couple into the complex. Meanwhile, David Frost is watching them. He's seeing them enter a gated area from Mike's balcony to see who would be coming in to visit Mike. It seems suspect, because Mike is in San Jose for the Stanley Cup playoffs, and anyone that knows him is going to be pretty aware of that fact. It's a lifelong memory in the making, so it's kind of a big deal. David does not recognize the two people, so he heads out to meet them at their vehicle, and he asks security who the people are and who they say they're trying to see. When he hears that they want to see Mike, he is furious, yelling, what do you want? And well, I'm Mike Danton. Levi calls him out on the lie, and so he backs up, saying he's actually Mike's father. Levi decides to abort the mission already, and he wants to exit the parking lot. Security guard is bewildered, and he didn't know what everyone was wanting. But he opened the gate to allow Katie and Levi to exit after Levi said he was going to come back later. Levi thought David Frost was actually Steve Jefferson, Mike's dad. And Katie thought Levi was a hitman that was also a dirty cop, so nobody had any idea of what was really going on. And Levi pulled over, deciding to wait for his backup officers to arrive. He was so nervous and just waited it out while Katie tells him that she thinks that was Mike's agent and that she had never seen his dad before. Yes, she confided. It didn't seem likely to her that Mike's dad would ever be at his place. She was either confused, as he was, or not letting him in on everything that she knew. But regardless, she would be arrested soon, and Levi would be talking to Mike on his mobile phone. The FBI wanted to talk to Frost, so he was trying to get a hold of Mike as quickly as possible. Mike was trying to frantically reach Levi. Finally, the police were questioning David Frost, who was referring to himself as Mike Danton's father. And it wouldn't work. The officers responding to the call were in on the sting operation, and they'd already been made aware of what was happening. So police began going through Mike's apartment. And they found the safe left open, with $3,000 wrapped up in envelopes. Katie is arrested and taken into custody. The St. Louis Blues are eliminated from the playoffs and headed to their hotel rooms. Summer vacation at last. But in an affront to the spirit of the team, Mike books his own flight home and heads back to St. Louis alone. The team was shocked. And upon looking back, they realized Mike was being strange that night, even texting a lot in the dressing room, and some thought they observed him weeping. On the way home to St. Louis, he was leaving messages for Katie about how to handle herself if the police contacted her, telling her to stay calm and say she hadn't known him well and never spoke to Mike in weeks. He rambled on instructions about who she should know and not know, and what to do if police have him call her directly, and of course, to erase all of his messages once she heard them. And as Mike approached the boarding area, he was arrested for conspiring to commit a murder. And because he was conspiring over the phone from another state, he was in serious trouble. 23-year-old 
Mike Danton, was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, and he would end up being convicted for the charge. He would serve just shy of six years for the federal charge of the conspiracy. His successful professional career virtually stopped in its tracks. As news of the player's arrest and conviction, people were left with so many questions. Nothing was making any sense. This was a successful player who seemingly had an agent that presented as a father figure and who was there every step of the way to keep him on track. Now, he was almost murdered by the talented 23-year-old player that was like a son to him. A conspiracy concocted by Mike and his very young and not very serious girlfriend with a man she met one hour before offering the job to him as a hitman. The talk of life and death and the urgency that compelled Mike Danton to scramble his plan into action. And during the playoffs of a stellar year for Mike on the ice with the NHL. A dream that he had since he was a young boy. Why the urgency? And why target his mentor? And why was Mike afraid? In some way, these questions have never truly been answered. And when the attempt to clarify them is made by anyone involved, it's usually weak and it seems unconvincing. And the reason for that is not the answers provided are wrong or deceptive. It's that the questions are wrong. To understand why Mike Danton was caught up in a conspiracy like this. The answers aren't going to come from him. They're found somewhere around Mike Frost and maybe a little bit in the culture of the game itself. And once we go back and look into the history of David Frost, you may find that Mike's call for murder isn't even the real crime at all. Although Mike Danton did real time for it, you may find yourself feeling a little frosty on the details. And that's coming up next in Chapter 22. Thanks again for joining me for this chapter of Writing About Crime. Chapter 22 is going to be out in the next two days, so you'll be able to follow along with me some of the background on David Frost. It should make some more sense about what happened with Mike Danton. In the meantime, I hope you'll listen to this promo by another true crime podcast called Murderific. I really enjoy it and I think you will too. Maine, the northernmost state in America, usually thought of as a quaint, safe vacation destination. Our motto is the way life should be. But did you know serial killer John Joseph Jobert was raised in Maine and was convicted of three stabbing murders of young boys? or the unsolved abduction of baby girl Ayla Reynolds, supposedly stolen from her bed near Christmas 2011. Her body has never been found. These are just two of the main stories Murderific has covered. We cover crimes from all areas and main cases as well. Murderific True Crime Podcast, hosted by me, Bernadette, can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to murderific.com. We will be executing podcasts one crime at a time.